Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. Here's what's ahead on this edition. First up, noted author and commentator Joel Rosenberg, who deals with the rise and growth of the Islamic State in his latest series of novels. Then you'll meet renowned eye surgeon Dr. Ming Wang, who fled the Chinese Cultural Revolution and came to America, earning doctorates from Harvard and MIT. You'll be hearing as he expresses comments relative to his Christian worldview and his belief that science and faith are compatible. And on this edition of The Intersection, conversation highlights from the 2017 National Religious Broadcasters Convention in Orlando. Ted Baer of Movie Guide visited the Faith Radio Meeting House Broadcast Center in the exhibit hall and described his work in encouraging filmmakers to make more family-friendly films, which would include movies that do not offend the faith sensibilities of Christians. Also, you'll hear from author Karen Whiting, who provides some encouragement for families as they seek to grow spiritually and spend quality spiritual time together. Then comments from Nick Pitts of the Denison Forum on Truth and Culture, offering some insight into the faith perspectives of those in the millennial generation. Finally, from NRB 2017, it's author and historian William Federer with a conversation excerpt dealing with the integration of a biblical perspective of government into the founding of our nation. This is The Intersection, a production of The Meeting House. I'm Bob Crittenden. Joel Rosenberg is an expert on the Middle East and has written a number of fiction as well as nonfiction books. His novels fit into the political action-adventure category, and his latest, Without Warning, is no exception. Joel spoke with me recently and shared an update on the activities of Islamic State in the Middle East and worldwide. A relevant topic in light of this current trilogy centered around a journalist named J.B. Collins. Here now is Joel Rosenberg. I met with two former directors of the Central Intelligence Agency and then a former head of Israeli intelligence, the Mossad. All, all three of them separately told me that al-Qaeda in Iraq was beginning to morph into something much more dangerous, which became known as the Islamic State or ISIS. And that's where I began to, to follow that lead and begin to build a series around a New York Times foreign correspondent that hears a rumor that this new group of forming called ISIS uh, had captured chemical weapons in Syria. Now, when I was writing that, none of that had happened. And most Americans, myself included, had not heard much, if anything, about ISIS. In fact, as I was finishing writing the novel, the first one, President Obama was asked about ISIS, and he famously said, it's not a big deal. It's not a big threat. It's a JV team, uh, not first string. So, but yes, by the time, by the summer of 2014, uh, ISIS had captured almost 40% of Iraq and was slaughtering Christians and Shia Muslims and Yazidis and other minorities in, in what later became termed a genocide. And that's how rapidly it grew from the president, not even thinking of it as a threat to something enormous. And that's uh, and that, you know, somehow I was on top of that story and, and, and its magnitude uh, a little bit ahead of the curve. 
I want to ask you about the current state of ISIS in the Middle East. We've heard news reports here recently about an offensive against the city of Raqqa in Syria, which apparently is one of the main strongholds of ISIS, a headquarters, if you will. You also hear about the move to retake those areas in the Christian homeland of of Iraq, such as Mosul and some of the neighboring cities. How would you appraise right. the, the state of ISIS in the Middle East. I actually just wrote an op-ed this week for, it was posted on foxnews.com, and people can find a copy of it at, at my website as well, at joelrosenberg.com, asking the question, is, are, are we winning or losing the war against ISIS? And, and, the, and the reason I ask that question is because um, we actually did some polling, which, is, uh, which we released this week, which shows that most Americans don't think we're winning. They actually think we're losing, and I would agree with them. But here's how you have to divide that out. If you really focus on the question of are we gaining territory back from ISIS in Iraq, for example, the answer is yes. It's been slow. Uh, it should have been much faster and more decisive, but the previous administration sort of dragged their feet. But we are making progress on the ground against ISIS in Iraq. And I think soon, fairly soon, we will see the liberation of Mosul. That's the second largest city in Iraq. And as you mentioned, that's where a lot of this genocide by ISIS has been happening against Christians and Shia Muslims and others. So that's good. I mean, good being we are taking ground back from them. And I think we're going to cut the caliphate in half. But it's not true that we're winning overall. Remember, this began as Al Qaeda in Iraq. That was isolated to Iraq. But now ISIS has recruited jihadists, terrorists from 120 countries. Uh, they've killed more than 1,200 people in terrorist attacks outside of Iraq and Syria. This is a, this is a, a horrible uh, uh, ideology, um, a religious ideology in this case. It's not all Islam, but it's this unique brand of apocalyptic Islam, um, meaning people who are fanatics who believe that they can bring about the end of the world and the coming of their Messiah if they, if they kill enough Christians and quote-unquote infidels. That's, that's what ISIS is involved in. That's what I call apocalyptic Islam. It's not all of Islam, but it's a, it's a very dangerous genocidal version of, 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 of uh, or ideology, eschatology. And this is growing. This idea is metastasizing around the world. So overall, I think the United States is at more at risk and more in danger today than it was several years ago because a lot of these ISIS fighters, as they see themselves losing in Iraq, they're beginning to redeploy back to the countries that they came from, and they have foreign passports, and they could they could potentially slip into our country, and uh, and cause terrible uh, catastrophic attacks inside the United States, which is what without warning is about. Is what if that happened? What if we were winning in Iraq, but they come here and attack us? Scenario. Let's pray it doesn't happen. <laughs> Absolutely. Joel Rosenberg here on The Intersection. Find out more by visiting the website, Joel Rosenberg, that's R-O-S-E-N-B-E-R-G dot com. The Intersection continues now with Ming Wong. He is the director of Wong Vision 3D Cataract and LASIK Center in Nashville and founder of the Wong Foundation for Christian Outreach to China. In our conversation, he discussed his story of escaping from China, obtaining doctorates from Harvard and MIT, and discovering a relationship with Christ. He's written a book called From Darkness to Sight, A Journey from Hardship to Healing. 
Here now is Ming Wong. As I was in medical school at Harvard studying uh, human anatomy of the eye, you know, I wanted to become a laser eye surgeon because by then I already had a doctorate degree in laser physics, and I thought I would study eye, I could become a unique laser eye surgeon combining knowledge of medicine and the laser. So I was studying lasers, the structure of the eye, and I realized that it is so complex that number of cells, neuron cells involving visual interpretation in one person's head is greater than the number of stars that we have ever discovered in the entire universe. So I started calculating how long would it take for all these cells to arrange specific into this one particular pattern for visual interpretation. I realized it would have taken trillions and trillions and trillions of years, much, 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 much longer than the short period of time that 13 billion years that universe is purported to have existed. So I was in crisis. My gung-ho scientific viewpoint of the world was in crisis because I realized that there's such a fundamental question that could not be answered. How could such a complex human structure such as the eye evolve out of random? Then I met a professor who saw that I was in crisis. He, and he himself is a Christian. He took me out for lunch. And he said, Ming, what's a car street? I said, there's a car. He said, what's the difference between car and human brain? I said, human brain's got more complicated. He said, okay, let me ask you, can you imagine a pile, a random piece of metal, assemble itself into a car? I said, no way. He said, how about human brain? Right then and there, he opened a window in my life. He showed me that the reason that I was in such a crisis, could not explain such a complex structure, such a human eye could evolve out of random, is because it did not evolve out of random. It was a God's design specific for structure the eye to capture sight. He gave, me, he gave me my first Bible and he opened a window in my life to search for Jesus Christ's faith. And I came to realize science and faith are, are, are complementary. Uh, science tells us what things are, and faith tells us why things are. So we need both. Tell me about why it is that you wanted to to share your story, and what do you hope to accomplish? Bob, you know, one of the key questions we face today in America is how can we motivate our next generation, our children, our grandchildren? At the time when, you know, they have more things than we ever had before. They have iPhone, iPad. The human nature is such that when we have lots of things, we're less motivated. You know, some kids say, oh, it's not my fault. It's my teacher's fault. It's not my fault. It's my parents' fault. Oh, it's not my fault because I was, you know, I grew up in a bad situation. But motivate them we must because America's future depends on them. How can we motivate our next generation at the time of material abundance. And that's a real challenge. And I feel that perhaps by encouraging little Johnny or Nancy in this country today to read the real life story, you know, my biography from darkness to sun, it's not a fiction, it's what I've gone through. And to feel the pain and suffering of another youngster who at their age, who has so much less, who has suffered so much more, who at teenager years was condemned to the bottom of society, losing all hope for any further education, faced 
with the devastating fate of deportation and life sentence of hard labor and poverty, who fought against that, came through to this country with only $50, who could still make it. Johnny should be able to make it. Don't be lazy. Get up in the morning, go to school, study hard, pull up your grades. Johnny should realize that he has the freedom to go to school, to get an education. A freedom that was not available to me during Communist China Cultural Revolution. A freedom that's still not available in so much parts of the world, even today. You know, this 15-year-old Pakistan young lady who got shot in the head by Taliban, almost died. All she wanted to do was to go to school. So my biography from Darkness to Sight is, was written with young people in our country in mind. And hopefully they can read it and to feel the pain and suffering and make them work harder in school today by appreciating more what they have in America today. Ming Wong here on The Intersection. Find out more information through the website from darknesstosight.com. Well, this is the Intersection Podcast, the weekly production of The Meeting House. Learn more through the website meetinghouseonline.info. Through that site, you'll find a link to the download center marked Meeting House On Demand, through which you can listen to, download, or share full conversations featuring recent guests on the Intersection Podcast. Also, through that site, you can subscribe to the Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes. Two blogs are accessible. Plus, you can follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. You can also get connected to video content, including material from the recent National Religious Broadcasters Convention in Orlando. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. From the 2017 NRB Convention in Orlando, Ted Baer, founder and publisher of Movie Guide, joined me to talk about the work of his organization and its promotion of family-friendly content or content that is consistent with Christian values. Here now is Dr. Ted Baer. What we do in Hollywood is help people reach a bigger audience. We tell them that the faith-based audience is seven times bigger than the number of people who go to movies. About 20 million people go to movies every week and about 117 to 135 million go to church every week. So that's uh, seven times more go to um, church than movies. If you consider the Hispanic audience, because my wife is Argentine, that's about the same as the number of people who go to movies. African-American audience is not that big. And then, uh, you know, women and men, but they all go to church. So church is the biggest audience. Now, that's not as big as the population of the United States, which is 340 million, but mm-hmm. 117 million is a, is a big audience. So, you know, obviously from our corner of the world as a Christian network of radio stations, we do call attention to what are called the faith-based movies, and, and obviously that's a very valid niche, and you seem to have a real proliferation of movies that contain a faith message perhaps made by Christian filmmakers. But there's also something that you do, and I wanted you to comment on that. You have the ability to talk to people in the industry about the validity of the faith-based audience. In other words, telling producers, here are some things that you can do to keep from from offending this vast audience that you're talking to. Or I guess I should say, maybe to put a more positive spin on it, so this, these are ways you can better relate to this particular audience. Well, that all comes out of my background. My father was a star. He won the box office award in 1936. 
His uh, movie name was given by Jack Warner, the head of Warner Brothers. It was uh, Tex Allen, Bob Tex Allen. Uh, he was a big name in uh, about 80 movies. Famous Fleeting. I just taught at a university last fall, and the kids didn't know John Wayne, who came way after my father. So I'm fame is very fleeting, and I tell that to my classes when I was head of the department at Berkeley, etc. But then I grew up, uh, my, movie, my mother was a star. My mother died when I was young, and I grew up uh, pursuing love in all the wrong places and being just totally off the tracks and self-destructive and doing a lot of drugs and after financing five feature films, a woman uh, uh, kept giving me the Bible and said, read it, and why don't you tell me what's wrong with it? And I came to Christ, and I was, went to a seminary in New York, which I call a cemetery, and they had the rights to the uh, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the Chronicles of Narnia. So I became head of that organization. We did the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe on TV. We had 37 million viewers and an Emmy Award, and I said, we want to change the whole industry. One program is not enough. One movie is not enough. At the time when we started Movie Guide, there was only one movie with positive Christian content. And people told me, especially my friends like Don Wadman and everywhere, and uh, said, it can't be done. We can't change it. And now 64% of the movies this year had positive Christian content. Even mm. Captain America went to church. So our goal is to help Hollywood just understand the church market so they put more faith and values in their movies. And the more Christian content you do, the better it does. Of the top 10 films last year, 80% had positive Christian content. And only one had negative content, and it was bounced out of its first place, its place status when Sing came along. So we tell them how to make more money, how to succeed. I see a lot of friends of mine here who are walking around who came to Christ through the gala. A lot of them come to Christ, and we work with them. We show them how to do scripts and how to do production and how to reach markets, and we encourage people to make more faith-based films. I'd love to see the church make more films that reach a broader audience. I'm friends with the guys who started Pure Flicks when they were just little, little kids, <laughs> and uh, we tried to help them along, and they're doing great. Some people do great because they listen, they pay attention, they look at the numbers. It's a business. It's not just, you know, uh, it's just it's an art. And not Vincent van Gogh standing there not selling any paintings to anybody except their brother. They're actually trying to sell tickets, and the, the tickets have to be sold to over 40 million people to make a difference in Hollywood. So we're trying to help people sell more tickets. We're trying to help people succeed. And we wish that everybody would learn those principles. I teach people how to succeed in Hollywood without losing your soul. We do movie guide to help parents. The most powerful person in Hollywood is the 12 to 24-year-old who goes to movies. Bob, you may not be going to many movies. <laughs> You're not 12 to 24. I'm trying to think of the last movie I went to. <laughs> but we reach a lot of 12 to 20. In fact, our biggest audience, we're, we reach about 34 million, but our biggest audience, our Facebook and and YouTube reaches millions. Our biggest audience on YouTube is teenagers. Ted Baer here on The Intersection. The website address is movieguide.org. Well, author Karen Whiting visited the Faith Radio Meeting House Broadcast Center at NRB and talked about the importance of family spending time in spiritual discussions. She's authored the book, 52 Weekly Devotions for Busy Families. Here now is Karen Whiting. I really want to build wholesome, strong families and help them thrive. It's so important to me because I grew up in a wonderful functional family and I see such breakdown that I at least know what it looks like and I can try to help them. Well, let's talk about the 52 weekly devotions for busy families. 
book. The the devotional format has become quite popular. I think there are a number of reasons for that. When you set out to do a, a devotional book, you're obviously taking messages, short messages, and you're really trying to, to, to get a central theme across in a very short period of time. So, so what, are the, what are the keys you found to be effective as far as, as writing that sort of book? Well, in particular for families, you first have to understand the family and know they're super busy. So I want to put little modules in each one where they can do one thing at a time and not have to read through everything. Therefore, the story is a little separate from the activities, from the chat questions, and other components of each devotional. And that way they can pick up and do one part on a day when they have time for it. Well, obviously, when you're looking at biblical truth, there are great ways, great tools that you have at your disposal in order to really reinforce that truth. You talked about activities that go along with this. Talk about how you're able to really enhance the learning process. Right. Well, I love to do hands-on activities where you can actually do something. So if I'm going to teach the golden rule to my children, maybe do something on fairness, I might first have them actually paint a ruler gold and write with a marker that golden rule on there so they have something visual to look at and say, this is God's real marker. He doesn't measure us by how tall we are. This is only a foot long. He measures your heart. He measures your actions. And he really measures... Are you doing what he says of do unto others as you want them to do unto you? Mm. Well, I want you to take us back. It's um, I've been made aware that you have two children <laughs> that are rocket scientists. Yes. So, so when you hear the phrase, it doesn't take a rocket scientist, that probably has special meaning for you. Yeah, when they were in school and studying that, I thought, oh, nobody's going to need them for a job because they don't need a rocket scientist. <laughs> but it, it does. It makes me think back to all the things we did with them and when they were young, the challenges of such a bright minds and wanting to develop the critical thinking, which I found we did through devotions. But I can remember James when we were reading about yeast and heaven, and he said, wait a minute, didn't we read about yeast and the Pharisees? That wasn't so good. And I said, why don't we do some experiments? And we did experiments to see how yeast is good for bread, but not so good for alcohol making. And it gave him that difference. And we would just delve into explaining or taking up that challenge when they asked us a question. I want to zero in on that phrase, critical thinking, because obviously it's important that we not only share spiritual truth with our children and families, but also it's important that they think critically so that they can make decisions relative to their own faith. And you've, you've touched on it already, but what do you see as some of the important ingredients to really help to stimulate critical thinking, especially about spiritual content? I think that's where you have to go into discussions, and you do that with a chat prompt is what I call it. So Hmm. if your week, say the one we were talking about, is unfairness, then you may pick up some other verses or key things that happen in the Bible and say, do you think that was fair? Do you think what Jesus said to a Pharisee was fair? Do you think the way he treated this person was fair? And then talk about what does fairness really mean to God? You know, there's a story with there, so I'll start with that sometimes. In in fairness, the story is when my older son Michael said, hey, you know, Mom, you spend a lot more money on dance lessons than you do on soccer for me. Uh, how about that's not so fair? And I said, oh, all right, I can do something to make it fair. And he says, great, I have ways to spend 
the money. I said, no, no, you can take dance lessons. <laughs> he was like, what? And I said, well, think about it. The town has a soccer team, and you get to do soccer much cheaper because of that. They don't have a dance program, so we have to pay for private lessons, but we're giving you each just what you want. That's what's fair. We're not counting the pennies. And I said, you know, that's where Jesus looked at this poor woman who gave two cents. Was that fair or equal to what the other people gave? No, but God saw her heart, and that's what he looks at for us. Mm. So how did that go over? (laughs) (laughs) He was so funny about that. He said, oh, all right, I get it, Mom. And he was much better with it. Yes, he did, but he was willing to debate this and talk about it a little bit and then realize that... We weren't counting fair the same way he first thought of it. Karen Whiting here on The Intersection. Find out more by going to the website, karenwhiting.com. This is The Intersection Podcast with Nick Pitts, who serves as Director of Cultural Engagement at the Denison Forum on Truth and Culture. He visited with me at NRB 2017 to discuss some of the mindsets present within the millennial generation, including those within the Christian church. Here now from that conversation is Nick Pitts. I think what we're continuing to see is that, you know, holistically across the American experiment, typically uh, younger people have been more liberal um, in their younger years and then have grown into more conservative beliefs. But what we're seeing relative to millennials now is there's there's kind of a, a persuasion that's starting to see that um, uh, kind of applying their biblical beliefs and, and seeing that coincided specifically we see with the Democratic Party. And, and it's just very fascinating to see how millennials are gravitating more and more towards what, what, many, what the Democratic Party has kind of gravitated towards, simply because they're tired of fighting some of these cultural wars that they grew up around, i.e. the abortion debate, i.e. death penalty. Yeah. So, so even in the church, do you think that the, the abortion debate, the, de- the debate over sexuality, that's not really something that this, the, the millennials in the church are interested in so, fighting? So even in, this, even in the church, what's staggering is 68% of evangelical Christian millennials favor same-sex marriage. And so that's, that's mm. a staggering number of individuals that if they believe the Word of God to be true, to be a lamp into their feet and a light to their path, have decided that relative to what what's Paul saying in 1 Corinthians 6 or Romans 1 is not necessarily a light that they're willing to walk through. Wow. So what do you attribute this to? Is it, is it just maybe lack of biblical exposure to biblical teaching on the subject, or is there something else going on here? You know, I think there is a biblical illiteracy that's been documented among millennials, and I think that's just documented holistically among Christians, period. But I think what we're continuing to see is that millennials, uh, millennials put relationships at a premium. They are more than they are more than likely to go to great lengths to p- protect their relationships because you have to remember, millennials grew up in a broken, very broken world. The relationships were being broken relative to their families. That we were always at war. Um, that there were always just an economic precarious situation that they entered into the workforce. And so there's that sense of brokenness. But out of that brokenness, they placed a great premium on relationships. And I think what you see with millennials is they know many of these same, uh, same-sex attracted, these homosexual people, and they're, and they're gravitating towards forsaking the biblical injunctions and towards restoring the relationships and agreeing with them and uh, what many would consider outside of biblical orthodoxy. I want to return to something that we were talking about earlier, and that is the participation or the lack of participation in the electoral process. And Mm -hmm. something you said that you saw these protests at the Democratic National Convention, uh, 
and it seems that you've got people that they are all too willing to go to the streets and to protest over you know any number of things but you just kind of wonder do these people really show up at the ballot box you know so statistics would say that they're, that they're not and so one of the things that protests offers it offers instant gratification i can i can do x in order that i can see a result y which is which is media attention which is garnering the likes on facebook or on various other social media avenues and so there's the instant gratification that can come from protesting in the streets or being able to post something controversial to take a stand on an issue but what you're not seeing uh, what doesn't happen is in voting there's not the instant gratification that can come that your vote quite literally could be on the losing side and what we're seeing with millennials is there's an increasing sense that uh, voting doesn't yield that instant gratification therefore they're not voting nick pitts here on the intersection learn more through the website denison forum d-e-n-i-s-o-n dot o-r-g Finally, on this edition of the Intersection Podcast from the 2017 National Religious Broadcasters Convention in Orlando, author and historian William Federer discussed some elements of history based on his book, Who is the King in America and Who are the Counselors to the King? An Overview of 6,000 Years of History and Why America is Unique. This conversation material deals with the integration of a biblical perspective of government into the founding of our nation. Here now is William Federer. The U.S. Constitution was written. It needed to be ratified by nine states. They had eight. New Hampshire was in line to be the ninth, but New Hampshire was in a deadlock. They pause. They have a day of fasting. They come back. And Harvard President Samuel Langdon gives an address to the New Hampshire delegates titled, The Republic of the Israelites, an Example to the American States. Instead of the 12 tribes of Israel, we may substitute the 13 colonies of the Mm -hmm. American Union. See this application plainly. What was the Republic of the Israelites? It was his first 400-year period. Now, one little instance is worth noting. How do republics go back to be running by tyrant kings? Abimelech. Sorry, so Gideon wins. They come to Gideon. They say, you be a king over us. He goes, no, the Lord is your king. Right? So the Lord yep. is the king over each individual person. So he's still on track, yeah. And then one of the illegitimate sons of Gideon is Abimelech. He goes to a city called Shechem, yeah. and he becomes an agitator. And he says, hey, you want, you know, this other people, have me rule over you. I'm one of your kin. What do they do? They go to the temple of Baal Barith, and he, Abimelech takes 70 pieces of silver, and he hires vain and worthless persons to kill all of his brothers, and he makes himself king for a couple of years until somebody throws a millstone on his head. And so here we got this scenario. If you want to take a republic where the people are ruling, you need agitators who are paid. Another example is Athens was a democracy until Philip of Macedon, the father of Alexander the Great, found out that he could bribe citizens of Athens with money under the table and they would betray their own city. It was in confusion. They couldn't mount a defense. He's able to come in and take over. Another is Rome. Uh, There are 600 senators, and when they get to the end, they're mostly in three parties run by Caesar, Pompey, and Crassus. Crassus is the richest guy in Rome. He dies. Turns into a tug of war between Caesar and Pompey. Caesar has no money. What does he do? He raids the temple of Saturn in Rome. It was their federal treasury. And he takes 400 years of Roman gold to buy agitator supporters against his opponent, Pompey. And when he finally does, does he say, hey, people, you can help me run Rome? No, he makes himself dictator for life. And so we see... uh, you know, uh, Hitler had his brown shirts that he paid. Lenin had his people that he paid. And so here we, we see a scenario of America. And lo and behold, we have a republic where the people are king. John Jay is the first chief justice of the Supreme Court. He says the people are the sovereign of America. 
you have uh, Abraham Lincoln said the people are the rightful masters of both Congresses and courts. So in America, the people are king. Well, how do we get back to rule by a tyrant? Well, you have agitators, agent provocateurs. They come in and they create crises. And then the people say, well, we need some power, some big, strong person to come in and restore order. And the person comes in and takes away everybody's guns and makes himself a king. And so we see this scenario 500 years ago. Uh, is this making sense? It, no. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm tracking with you. Uh, 500 years ago, Machiavelli was in Italy. Now, Italy was a bunch of city-states, Venice, Genoa, Naples, and they always fought. Machiavelli thought if one prince could control all of Italy, it would stop this infighting. So he writes a book called The Prince where he advocates the ends justifies the means. The end of one prince controlling all of Italy is such a good end that any means necessary to get there is justified. Lie, cheat, steal. So if a prince conquers a city, they would hate him. But if the prince pays criminals to kill cows, burn barns, create crisis and terror, the people would cry out for help. The prince would come in and get rid of the people he bribed, and everyone would praise the prince as a hero. So it's actually good marketing. You create the need and fill it. You go around the back of the house and set it on fire, and then you go around the front of the house and sell them a fire extinguisher. And they'll pay anything for it and even thank you for being there. So it's called Machiavellianism, where you create or capitalize mm -hmm. on a crisis to consolidate control. That influenced Hegel. Who was he? Remember Napoleon conquers Prussia and Europe, and so the king of Prussia says we got to strengthen the state. And so who does he get? A guy named Hegel. And he came up with Hegelian dialectics. And Hegelian dialectics is, is a triangle. One corner is a thesis. Opposite corner is an antithesis. And the top corner is a synthesis. It sounds complicated, but it's not. You start off, then you create a problem that's real bad, and everybody's happy to settle for your answer that's half as bad. And how do you create a problem that's real bad? You send in agent provocateurs, provoking agents, labor organizers, community organizers, troublemakers, and they, what do they do? They find fault lines and tensions and grievances that people have, and they stir them up until there's rioting and bloodshed, and then everybody's willing to surrender their freedoms to have order restored. 45 countries fell to communism this way. William Federer here on The Intersection. Learn more through the website AmericanMinute.com. Well, that just about wraps up this edition of The Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. Again, that website address is MeetingHouseOnline.info. There you'll find the download center marked Meeting House On Demand. You can also get subscribed to the Intersection podcast. Two blogs are accessible. One is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House radio program. Also, The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. You can also follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. Video content is accessible also. Again, that website address is MeetingHouseOnline.info. Thanks for joining me for this edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.